Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, I've got a review of the third season of a show that might actually usurp Ted Lasso as my favorite show of 2021. Bus. I'm Jeff Braun. I'll review what might be my favorite movie of 2021, the long-awaited Dune. Plus... We've got some great news for fans of the HBO show Succession and for fans of Buzz Lightyear. But before we do any of that, it's Halloween weekend. we got to talk Halloween movies. And we decided, you know what, why don't we go back to some of the movies that scared us when we were kids. And for us, that puts us back in the 80s. I mean, there were a bunch of movies that scared us, but we've selected a handful for your enjoyment. So I've got two, and they're both from 1985. It began in May. And every month after that, whenever the moon was full, it happened again. And again. Nobody knew who or what was responsible. They only knew it had to be stopped. Now. Stephen King's Silver Bullet. From the master of mystery and suspense. Stephen King's Silver Bullet. I love these. I like that trailer. Yeah, it's just uh, so 80s. So Silver Bullet is adapted from Stephen King's novella, Cycle of the Werewolf, which was kind of unique in that each chapter was its own short story in a longer story telling one month at a time. The story is set in the fictional town of Tarker's Mills in where else but Maine, because that's where all of his stories are set. Each chapter is a month on the calendar, as mentioned, and a werewolf is viciously killing local citizens at each full moon, and the otherwise normal town is living in fear. The protagonist of the story is Marty Kozlaw, a 10-year-old boy in a wheelchair. The story goes back and forth from the terrifying incidents to Marty's youthful day-to-day life and how the horror affects him. Now, the movie stars Corey Haim, Megan Follows, and Gary Busey, and I used to, I really liked this movie because Gary Busey was his uncle, I believe. And he actually made him like this really souped up wheelchair. It was like a wheelchair motorcycle almost. And they called that the silver bullet. So he'd go zipping around in this thing. And uh, eventually he encounters and, well, I won't say anything else in case you want to watch it. But he has an encounter with the werewolf. And when I was eight years old... Like This movie would probably be really cheesy now if I were to watch it. But when I was eight, it scared the daylights out of me. And I still remember we, we watched this movie. And I'm guessing both of these movies are from 1985 because that's probably when I was my parents deemed me old enough to start watching scary movies. So we watched this Silver Bullet. We're in the basement. 
and uh, the movie ends, and I'm beside myself with fear. My mom gets up, goes around the corner into the laundry room to grab a Coke. We've got a fridge, and uh, my parents have a fridge in the uh, the laundry room in our basement. And she goes to get a Coke, and she starts screaming, Ah, the werewolves got me! So I immediately jump on my dad and hold on for dear life. I'm bawling my eyes out. She comes out and starts laughing at me. My dad looks at her and says, what is wrong with you? Although what he said to her was laden with a bit more expletives, shall we say. He was mad at her. I'm crying. She's laughing. So, uh, yeah, great memories of Silver Bullet. <laughs> Jeez, no kidding. <laughs> it's, I, 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 I think I have since watched it, but I would like to revisit it again and see if it actually has any fear factor. My next one, and I think this is my favorite Halloween movie of all time. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Well, that's the situation that is presented in this film. Again, also from 1985. It's a horror comedy classic as far as I'm concerned. Fright Night. Charlie Brewster is a high school kid who discovers his new neighbor is a vampire. Welcome to Fright Night. For real. That is Chris Sarandon as Jerry Dandridge, for my money, the coolest vampire ever. So to combat his bloodthirsty neighbor, Charlie seeks out the help of this guy. I am Peter Vincent Vampire Killer. Played by Roddy McDowell, Peter Vincent's just an actor. Like, it's just a character. But... Charlie seems to think that he needs Peter Vincent's help to get out of this mess. And I have watched this movie several times since I was a kid. And believe me, it is cheesy and corny. And I watched it with my buddy Steve once, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. <laughs> he still bugs me about it. He's like, I can't believe you made me watch that stupid movie. It's so corny. But I don't care. I love it. It's sentimental for me. And uh, they, they did remake it in 2011. Colin Farrell was the vampire in that. Movie wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. I will point out as well, both of these movies are available on demand on Hollywood Suite, if you have that. I just checked this week. Or you can uh, rent them through various digital platforms. There's also a collector's edition Blu-ray for Silver Bullet. On the cover, it says, part human, part wolf, total terror. And that made me laugh. And it's got a bunch of special features on it. And there's also a Blu-ray for Fright Night. But it's like $43 on Amazon. It's got no special features. I don't really understand that. I guess it's rare to find that. So I'll just watch it on Hollywood Suite. Thank you very much. So those are my two, Silver Bullet and Fright Night. It might just be a weird Amazon thing because my sister was once looking for uh, the DVD of Young Guns 2 and she found one on there and it was $900. <laughs> what? Like, she's like, even the stars of Young Guns 2 wouldn't pay $900 for a copy of that movie. So <laughs> it was just one of those weird Amazon pricing things. Every now and then you look something up and the price is just bizarrely expensive that no one would ever buy it. I don't understand. Amazon weirdness. Anyways, uh, I got a couple too. A couple that's Scarred me for life as a kid when I saw them and, you know, just really made me realize, Brett, that I don't enjoy watching scary things. And as we've talked about many times, I have not really seen very many horror movies. And here are a couple of the reasons why. One, of course, Michael Jackson's thriller video where he turns into that zombie. 
Now, I was a big Michael Jackson fan back in the day. We had the Thriller album at home, like everyone did, and it got played a lot. And then one day, we were at Zeller's, and they had that long 20-minute Thriller video playing on all the TVs. And since I was bored while my parents were shopping, I just stood there and watched it, and watched him turn into a zombie and all that, and I had nightmares for months. It was just brutal. I, I can listen to the song now, and I don't mind it, but that video just did something to me. I still don't like looking at it whenever it uh, pops up. I, to get this clip off of YouTube, I kind of did it blindly without looking at the screen. <laughs> Good for you, Jeff. Taking one for the team. Exactly. And then the other thing that scared me deeply as a child was uh, what's turned out to be, you know, one of our favorite movies of all time, Ghostbusters. Ghosts. They're real. They're here. And someone's got to stop them. It's a job for professionals. It's a job for the Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They're the best. The brave. The only. Ghostbusters. Coming to save the world this summer. We're ready to believe you. Who you gonna call? Rated PG. Now, Ghostbusters is a fantastic movie, and even on the first watch when I was eight years old, I enjoyed it a lot, except for one part, that part where the statue dogs come and get Sigourney Weaver. One of them is somehow inside her big living room chair, and it you know, pokes through and grabs her. That terrified me, and even you know today, I'll often just fast-forward through that scene out of habit. Uh, I will point out that the Braun family went to see Ghostbusters in the theater, and like I said, I was eight years old, and my little sister was five, and it didn't take long before Mom had to take her out of the theater because she was crying so much and we had you know driven half an hour to get to the theater so my mom and sister just sat in the car while my dad and I watched the rest of the movie I'm not sure how we got away with that now that I think of it but uh, that was one of uh, the Braun's memorable trips to the theater my parents had a they're pretty bad at picking movies for kids they tried to they got us they took us to Cheech and Chong at the drive-in once too and we were little <laughs> really that didn't last very long yeah and we're like two minutes into it my dad's like don't look at the screen and cover your ears because he'd already paid. So he's going to sit there and watch it. <laughs> did you, did he make you sit there like that the whole movie? Yep. Oh. So, I'm sure it fell asleep after a while or whatever. It's already dark, right? So, okay. Yeah, that was wild. And then I picked another movie just for something fun, something I saw as an adult, even though it is from the 80s. I've seen exactly one Friday the 13th movie, but not the first one. No, I've seen part six, Jason Lives. If the institution ever found out about this, they would haul our butts back in and straight check them. Permanent. You didn't have to come, Haas. This is between me and Jason. I know, I know, I know. But I still don't get the therapy here. All you need to know is Jason's dead, right? <laughs> Seeing his corpse ain't gonna snap the hallucinations. Seeing it won't, but destroying it will. Jason belongs in hell. I'm gonna see he gets there. Now, I watched this Friday the 13th movie a couple of years ago just because a podcast I liked did an episode on it. And I was delighted to find out that now, as a big boy, the movie isn't really scary like Little Jeff would have thought in the 80s. And it's very funny. I mean, there's some intentional comedy, but of course, there's a lot of unintentional comedy. Part six is the one where Jason is dead and buried at the beginning of the movie. Then those two guys we just heard dig up his grave to destroy his corpse. But then lightning strikes the corpse and reanimates it. So Jason is brought back to life. 
and he stalks around making his way back to Crystal Lake Camp, killing whomever he finds along the way. It's the one where these accountants are out in the woods on some corporate retreat, and they're playing paintball, and Jason comes through with his machete and gets them. And if memory serves, there are a couple of funny kills played for laughs, and some straightforward, there's some disturbing slasher-type stuff in the movie as well. Uh, you know, it's definitely gross at times, but... Not really scary, and uh, not that I'd watch it right before bed or anything like that, but I was pretty proud of myself that I made it through that Friday the 13th movie, uh, Brett. I still can't bring myself to watch a Freddy Krueger movie or a Halloween movie, though. Now, memory, if memory serves, I think that is the Friday the 13th where Jason walks out at the beginning of the movie James Bond style, and then he turns to the camera and slices his machete, and then the screen cuts in half, and all, a whole bunch of blood comes pouring out. Does that ring a bell? That does ring a bell. I have seen that. It must be the beginning of this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jason, I haven't seen all the Friday the 13th movies, but I, I think the first one I saw was part five, which was terrible. And then I, I watched uh, part six with my buddy. And uh, they are what they are. They're, they're cheesy 80s gore movies. Uh, I kind of want to go back and rewatch that now. Watch him stab that spear or whatever into Jason's dead heart just as the lightning strikes him. And then he goes for it goes after the paintballers. Okay, so there are your suggestions, some Halloween recommendations heading into the weekend. And in a moment, we got to tell you about some really good news as it pertains to succession. You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes, and some great news this week for fans of HBO's Succession. That rat sets one foot inside this building. I'll punch him in the nose. I think that's the grown-up solution that keeps everyone happy. Kendall is on a mission, and he's not going to stop unless we take his legs out. There are a million knives being sharpened. Probably need to be a face or two behind bars. What's your angle? I come from a world of image, family business. It does not look good for them. Only two episodes into season three, and already HBO has renewed the show for a fourth season. If you're not familiar with the show yet, it's about this mega media conglomerate, and it follows the power struggle at the top of the company food chain between the dad who runs the show and his kids who are all power-hungry and scheming in one way or the other. That might sound boring, like a family courtroom or a boardroom drama, but uh, it's a really good story of a dysfunctional family. They're so mean to each other. It's just, wow, it's so good. First episode of season three drew a series-high viewership of 1.4 million viewers. Uh, and that, according to the network, that was the best premiere night ratings of any HBO series since HBO Max launched in May of 2020. And those numbers are going to grow over time as well because according to HBO, Succession's second season viewership was an average of 5 million uh, based on all of its various platforms and once they factor in, you know, delayed viewing, etc. And season two of Succession also won seven Emmys, including the top prize for outstanding drama. So that's exciting. Jeff, did you watch the second episode? I did watch a second episode, and it was really good. That's one of the best episodes I think they've ever had. So, yeah, I'm jacked that they're going to get a season four. I hope they sort of don't go beyond five maybe or something because sooner or later the back and forth of, oh, they're about to become the leader, and oh, they're about to get screwed back and forth like that over and over again. That will get tiring after a while. It hasn't gotten tiring yet, but they gotta they got to be mindful of that, I think. Yeah, I kind of hear that the show Billions, which I think is now five seasons in, and I sort of hear that 
it's kind of the same thing. Like it's just these two guys trying to get each other and uh, it, Apparently it's really good, but it's also getting kind of repetitive. And Damian Lewis will not be returning after season five of Billions. Uh, he had some uh, personal a personal tragedy. His wife died. So, uh, yeah. So that's Succession. And I got to quickly tell you about exciting news this week from Disney Pixar. To infinity. And beyond. They released the first teaser trailer for Lightyear, a.k.a. Buzz Lightyear, who will be voiced by Captain America himself, Chris Evans. So the way they're pitching this story is that it's the origin story of the real-life astronaut who inspired the Buzz Lightyear toys in the Toy Story movies. The film will follow Buzz's rise through the ranks to become captain of the Universe Protection Unit of the Space Ranger Corps, dedicated to fighting the evil Emperor Zerg. I'm not exactly sure how the timing works, seeing as the first movie was set in the 90s, but who cares? It's a cartoon, and it opens June 17th, 2022. Up next, Jeff has a review of Dune. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and the long-awaited remake of Dune came out in theaters last week, and I went to see it, and it blew my mind. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dreamed them? Yes. You inherit too much power. What did you see? The future. This is I do. Kill them all. There's a crusade coming. Dad, what if I'm not the future of House of Trades? It's time. One day, the legend will be born. A great man doesn't seek to leave. He's called to it. I must not fear. Dune is directed by Canadian director Denis Villeneuve, who's made a lot of great movies. I really like Sicario and Arrival. He also made Blade Runner 2049, so he's, you know, become one of the top names in science fiction, which makes Dune the perfect project for him. There was a movie in the 80s from David Lynch, and they're both based on the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. It should be noted that Dune the movie is... Part one. And no, they did not shoot part two at the same time, but it has been given the go ahead since then. And the expectation is that in two years we will get part two, which is good because I was quite taken with part one. I mean, the ending would have really sucked if there was no part two because it does end in a logical spot, but the story is in no way complete as it stands. And so far, it's a pretty good story. Now, I've not read the book, nor have I seen the Lynch movie. So this was all. Brand new information for me going in. I will say the guy sitting a few seats down at the screening I was at was clearly a Dune head or whatever you call Dune fans, and he really seemed to dig this movie. I could see in my peripheral vision he was nodding along the whole time. So this story is set on a, a planet that's all sand and desert, hence the title Dune, where there is something called spice, which is not used for cooking. It's not that kind of spice. Wikipedia defines spice as, quote, a drug that extends life and enhances mental abilities. It is also necessary for space navigation, which requires a kind of multidimensional awareness and foresight that only the drug provides. 
So as such, it's the most you know valuable thing in the galaxy. And by the way, they have a different word for galaxy or universe. I think they keep saying Imperium. But until I see this movie three more times, I am not going to remember most of those kind of details. And I have already forgotten how to pronounce almost all of the made-up names for places and people. Luckily, the characters have first names like Paul, Jessica, and Duncan, which is really weird given how space-age the rest of the names are. Timothy Chalamet is the main character. He plays Paul. His family, led by father Oscar Isaac, has a fiefdom on some other planet. Planet. And at the beginning of the movie, the Emperor chooses his family to mine all the spice on the Dune planet for everyone. It's a great honor, and they'll become very rich in the process. Now, there was already this other civilization on the Dune planet doing all that. Bautista is in the movie. He plays the leader of that spice gang. And it seems like they've gotten the boot, and they're not happy about it. They're led by Stellan Skarsgård, who looks sort of like a human Jabba the Hutt in this. It's really pretty gross, but also pretty impressive special effects. And there's also this indigenous population on the Dune planet, led by Javier Bardem, featuring Zendaya, and they just wish everyone would leave. So there's a lot of different factions at play here. Add to the fact that Paul has weird, possibly prophetic dreams and spice-induced visions, because his mom, played by Rebecca Ferguson, is a witch, and they have some kind of magic about them. He, there's all this talk of him being the one, like Neo in the Matrix, and you know that's just a sci-fi staple. So that's the crux of things. And honestly, the first 90 minutes of this movie is mostly just exposition. It's set against some truly astonishing visuals, and it went down quite smoothly for exposition. And it's the nature of sci-fi to have to introduce the world and its peoples and the rules for whatever magic or supernatural and technological things are at play. That's just the way it works. It requires a setup. It requires to have the action pay off later on. It was also the thing I was most worried about going in because I was concerned that I may have hit my capacity for dropping into a whole new universe of this sort of thing and having to learn it all between Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. You know, it's an, it's enough already for the limited space in my brain. So I sort of went in with my defenses up. And like I said, I didn't retain all the details on the first watch, but I did find it easy enough to follow along as the movie went along. I could identify the different players and factions and understood what everyone was trying to accomplish. And it all had some real emotional weight behind it as well. Rebecca Ferguson is just terrific in this, but she's always good. Jason Momoa is also in this movie as as our is uh, Josh Brolin. They're soldiers with Paul's people. Uh, Brolin is actually training Chalamet. The acting is great all around. And I was most excited, I think, when Javier Bardem showed up because I didn't even know he was in this movie. Zendaya doesn't get much to do, but will clearly be a bigger part in uh, part two of Dune. Uh, I, like I said, we are going to get that part two as it turns out, so that's good. I would say try to see it on the biggest screen that you can. You won't be disappointed. In Canada, you pretty much have to go to the theater to see it anyways. In the U.S., it's also available to stream at home on HBO Max, but this would be the one movie that you do want to see on a big screen. And it's not just the, you know, much ballyhooed sandworm that's worth the price of admission. Villeneuve is one of these directors that just puts in so much effort into the look of his movies. Most every frame of Dune could be a poster. It's just super cool looking the whole way through, and you'll see things you've never seen before in a movie. And then there's the score from Hans Zimmer, and he's really outdone himself this time. Uh, it's another good reason to see it in theaters. It's incredibly loud, and it really plays a big part in the experience and the overall vibe of this movie. The New York Times wrote an article about Zimmer last week and how he made up new sounds for the score, and the article said this. I'll, I'll quote the New York Times here. The resulting soundtrack might be one of Zimmer's most unorthodox and most provocative, along with synthesis 
synthesizers. You can hear scraping metal, Indian bamboo flutes, Irish whistles, a juddering drum phrase that Zimmer calls an anti-groove, seismic rumbles of distorted guitar, a war horn that is actually a cello, and singing that defies Western musical notation, just to name a few of its disparate elements, end quote. Uh, all around great stuff for Dune. It looks amazing. It's a solid story, well told, despite the trappings of the genre, and a terrific cast who are all throwing fastballs. And even though it is two and a half hours long, I thought it just flew by. It didn't feel too long at all. The ending, like I said, a bit underwhelming, but once they do get a part two out there uh, and you can watch them back to back, you know, that won't be an issue. So four and a half couch cushions out of five for Dune from me, Brett, and I'll be shocked if this thing doesn't get 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Whoa, Best Picture. Okay. Think, uh, that, might, that might be a stretch, but anything technical, it's guaranteed to be nominated, and I can't. I, I will not be surprised if this thing wins seven Oscars. Okay. I have not seen the David Lynch film. I have not read right. the book. I'm just pulling up, because I know that that original film is not sort of, it's maybe a cult classic, but it's not revered or no, anything. Yeah, 44% no. on Rotten Tomatoes. It was a thing, I think, where he tried to cram the whole book into two hours and ten minutes or whatever, so it just ends up missing way too much stuff, I guess. Oh, Sting was in that. I forgot that Sting was in it. I knew that uh, <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan was in it, but I forgot Sting was in it. Okay. And a young Brad Dourif, who is, the, of course, the voice of Chucky, also uh, Grima Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings movies, and uh, the good doctor from Deadwood, among many other things. Okay. Kind of curious now. Do you think you'll ever go back and watch the original just for fun? The, the 80s one? Yeah. Ah, if it was, it's a thing where I don't think I would seek it out. If it's on TV, I would definitely tune in just to give it a look for a few minutes for sure. Okay. So that's Dune. And in a moment, I want to tell you about season three of a show that, like I said at the beginning, could end up taking Ted Lasso's spot as my favorite show of 2021. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. Right now I want to tell you about season three of a show on Netflix that debuted a month ago. Finally got around to watching it this week. And I love it so much. Sex Education. Hey sis, what's in your face? It's a moustache. I've been growing up all summer. I forgot to tell you, I saw Maeve the other day. I don't need to know what Maeve is doing anymore. Here are the students currently attending what has been dubbed the sex school. Oh. <laughs> good morning, morning. How is everyone feeling today? Really good. I am your new head teacher. Seems that there are some students here who get a kick out of giving us a bad name. It changes today. Sex Education is a British teen comedy drama that follows the lives of students, staff, and parents of the fictitious Moordale Secondary School as they contend with, you know, their personal dilemmas that are often related to sexual intimacy. It's interesting the way that they put this show together because it's a British show and it's set in the United Kingdom. But as mentioned, it's a fictitious show. It's shot in Wales in, for all intents and purposes, could very well be the Shire. It, the, the setting is 
so beautiful and serene. It's just, it, I've said this before, if you've heard me talking about sex education, but it's like paradise. It's just such a neat little spot that they found to film this show. So that's cool. But they, in an effort to make the show more appealing to American audiences, like the like British schools, they have uniforms. Well, they ditched the uniforms to, and they, you know, there are scenes where they're even throwing like an American football down the hallway. So they, they just, you know, they, they, these shows now are trying to do more things to be more appealing to larger global audiences because now that we're all we're we're all streaming the same stuff, um, they got to make these shows more appealing to get more audiences. And hey, I got no problem with that. So the show primarily focuses on a character named Otis. He's a student at the school. And he starts the show kind of like, you know, ambivalent about sex, partly because his single mom, Jean, who is played by Gillian Anderson, she's a sex therapist and she has lots of affairs and stuff and lots of one nighters. So he kind of I think it sort of has wrecked the idea of intimacy for him. And in the but in the first series, turns out he kind of has a gift for sex therapy. So he sets up this kind of under the table clinic with his friend Maeve to help the students of Mordale with their sexual problems and uh, their business becomes a success. But then there is conflict when Otis finds himself becoming attracted to Maeve. So, I mean, I've pulled a lot of this, uh, a lot of the, the nuts and bolts here from their Wikipedia page, and you can get more on all the various characters who are in this show from there. But I uh, love, love, love this show, and it is at season three, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. The first two were in the 90s, but the third season, 100%, and it's well-earned. It's not perfect, but it's it's near perfect as far as I'm concerned. And I liked the way that they handled some things because season two ended on a pretty wild cliffhanger I like I was screaming at my television when season two ended I couldn't believe what had just happened I was so so angry and they didn't drag it out they actually resolved it much earlier in the season than I thought because it looked like they were going to drag it out and they didn't so I, I like that uh, because that's an unexpected change of pace for that kind of thing and I just I enjoy the show so much because it's so brazenly honest and quite frankly relatable one of my friends said something like, it was like she pulled the words right out of my head. She says the character development, the inclusivity, the willingness to discuss typically taboo subjects. I wish it had existed when I was a teenager. So yeah, like they, I think some of, a lot of the stuff in this is silly to probably kind of make a point and, and to play for comedy as well. And there's quite a bit of toilet humor as well, which I sort of found didn't fit. And I have no problem with toilet humor. It just felt like they were going like a little overboard on that. And I haven't done any research on that. There might be a reason for that too. I don't know. But uh, it, in most cases, it actually like tied into the story pretty well. But there are a couple of things in there that are just really, really gross. And I figured, I feel like they could have gone a different way to to achieve what they were trying to achieve um i'm just looking at my notes here i think it's relatable as well because it doesn't matter how old the characters are in this show like life is confusing 
no matter how old you are. Relationships are confusing no matter how old you are. And everyone in this show, no matter how old they are, are as confused as the other as it pertains to relationships. So it was just nice to to see like, okay, I remember what that was like when I was a teenager. But then you've got people who might be even a little older than me and who are having problems in their relationships. And you think, all right, well, I guess it it never really gets any easier, does it? (laughs) So it was good to see that um, because I'm bad at relationships. And it's good to see that I'm going to continue to be bad at them, at least according to this TV show. But it's just, it's fun. It's so well acted. It has an amazing ensemble cast that just brings me so much joy to watch in the way that these... Uh, this group of people has gotten better through three seasons. It's incredible. It's incredible. Honestly, it might be like I, I'm pretty sure I boldly declared a few weeks ago that Ted Lasso is going to be my number one show of 2021. But after watching season three of Sex Education, I'm I think I'm ready to plant a flag and at the very least say Sex Education is the best show on Netflix. It's my favorite show on Netflix. Like if I were to make one recommendation, if you got Netflix today and were to watch one show, I would say sex education should be the show because it's got everything. It's got the comedy, it's got drama, it's got romance. And yes, it's kind of raunchy at times. And so it has a lot of sex in it, but it's not uh, done just to be raunchy. It's all played for, for mostly for comedy. So there you go. I like sex education a lot. And uh, I will. I have a, a decision to make, Jeff, as it pertains to our year-end yep. special. I got to decide which one's better. Oh. <laughs> and you have to pick Brett. You can't cop out and say tied for first are Ted Lasso and Sex Education. <laughs> no, that doesn't count. No, there, there will must be, be sticklers. No, there will be no tie. There will be no tie. I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I will pick one, and I will. I will run with it. I just need to let this soak in because I just finished watching it yesterday. So I need to just let it sit for a week, let it digest, and then decide. Uh, maybe I just got to go back and watch them both again. But that, the problem with rewatching stuff is that means I'm not getting to other new things. I usually save the rewatching for when I want to watch The Matrix for the 50th time or Avengers for the 90th time or whatever. Uh, that's all the time we've got. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.